Welcome to the Militant Grind Podcast, where today's guest, Joe Catrone, brings his extensive 17-year experience in social media at an enterprise level. A master in platform algorithms and leading teams for iconic social media campaigns, Joe's journey is marked by the mentorship of marketing luminaries, Gary V and Scott Keogh. Now, focused on societal change, Joe applies his skills to meaningful projects from aiding PTSD-afflicted veterans with cannabis products to collaborating with media companies for stress-relieving content. Join us as we explore Joe's innovative approaches to today's challenges and his journey under the guidance of marketing giants. Joe, great to have you today. Thanks for having me, Sherman. Not a problem, not a problem, man. So let's get into it, man. I want to know who the infamous Joe Quatron is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, I'm, I'm a lot of things. I'm a I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a I'm a lot of different things. Um, I'm a 17 year marketing veteran. So your your lead in. Um, mar- I don't know why marketing. I think when I was younger. Um, my dad and my mom, like I grew up in a house full of pack rats, like my parents always collected a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I never I never really understood why. So when I was starting to think about what I wanted to do for my career, I, I started really leaning in on what is it about brands like Coca-Cola or Ford that really get people like my dad excited. So uh, it was a little bit of that curiosity, you know, like, um, just uh, just trying to figure out why humans behave the way they do that got me so interested in. And once I figured that out, I just uh, I just picked a distance way off in the horizon. I said, I'm going to be a CMO one day. And, uh, and that's what I've been working on ever since. <laughs> wow. Wow. So wh- how did you begin this journey? Like, what was the first thing that you got into? Because I know now, you know, 17 years is a, is a long time to be in marketing, period. But marketing, I don't I, you know, I assume it wasn't as uh, prevalent, you know, almost 20 years ago as it is now with the social media, you know, and the marketing campaigns and things like that. Like, I feel feel like back then it was a very niche market, right? Uh, It was prevalent. It just wasn't something that like everyone on the street wanted to do, you know, like (laughs) now, nowadays my kids want to be YouTube creators and stuff like that. But when I, when I was, uh, you know, kind of formulating this or hatching this plan in my head, it was something that seemed almost unattainable because there was a, a, it wasn't, it was a very niche profession um, it was also like a very weird and untrusted profession. People look at advertisers as like scum, kind of like, you know, ambulance chasing lawyers or, you know, whatever the case may be. But um, but it was very niche and it was very high end. So like in order to get into the highest levels of advertising, you had to kind of tick the right boxes, know the right people, that kind of thing. But really, my journey started way before I came up with the idea. The journey started when I was in my probably late teens, early 20s, I was like 300 pounds. And uh, so I was severely overweight. And I was, you know, doing drugs and drinking and just wasn't in good mental health or physical health. And uh, I took, you know, I took three years off of school after high school, I just Mm -hmm. didn't want to I was tired, I didn't want to go to school. I wasn't ambitious at all. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So my my parents didn't have any money to send me to college. And I didn't really want to go into massive amounts of debt you know, pursuing some degree that 
I wasn't going to use. Mm-hmm. So I took time off. I surfed on their couch. I got meaningless jobs and I wound up gaining a ton of weight uh, from my high school weight of about 215, 220. I was always a little bit bigger, but I never really was that big. And then, you know, I ballooned up to, to near 300 pounds. And um, I remember when I was 21, I just, I stopped feeling sorry for myself. And I, uh, I, I gave myself a mandate. I said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix my life or else my, I'm probably going to die. <laughs> so, mm, right. so I told myself uh, that I was going to make a goal. And my goal was to go running every day for a hundred straight days. Just, I didn't care. It wasn't about losing weight. It wasn't about, you know, fitting into certain kind of clothes. It wasn't about anything in particular. It was just do something, set your mind to it and achieve that goal. So uh, I, I set a date for a hundred out in the, off in the horizon, not even knowing what I was doing. And uh, the rules I gave myself were, it doesn't matter how far you go. It doesn't matter how fast you go, <laughs> just do something every day. And, right. um, and, and, Sure enough, like when I first started, it was a little bit, uh, a little bit difficult mentally because I was worried about what other people thought about this big 300 pound dude running around outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is like way back in the day before people, everybody had a Peloton in their house and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, after a while I stopped, I started zoning every, the outside world out and I just started like just listening to myself and, um, and, and trying to talk positively to myself and, and try to figure out how to just how to get through it every day. <laughs> and right. eventually I started to like it. I started to really enjoy it because it was my, my, my peace and comfort of my day. It was the one thing that I knew I could do and it was, and, and I could control it. And, and, uh, eventually it just started getting very positive. And, uh, I wound up losing like 140 pounds t- collectively over the course of like, you know, a year to 18 months. And, uh, so the weight just flew off. And, mm-hmm. uh, and once I realized that I could, I could set goals and I could achieve things, uh, that's when I started to, to set my sights on my career and, and becoming a better person and, you know, getting off the drugs and, and stop, stop drinking as much and all that kind of stuff. And to be honest, you know, you know, once I was, um, once I figured out that I wanted to go into marketing and, and I, wanted to be a CMO one day. Once I started applying for schools, the, the moment I got into school, I just kind of flew through the system. I graduated from college early. Um, I took a year off and worked. I worked in sales for a little bit just to make some money. And then I went back to grad school when I was 27 years old and I graduated top of my class. So so what gave you the inspiration? Did, was it something like internal? Did you watch a movie? Like what what gave you the inspiration to like to do that? Because usually there's some type of awakening, you know? Well, I think I was, I, I, I was, I think there wasn't necessarily one thing. It was like an, it was an amalgamation of a lot of different emotions and feelings. Uh, mm-hmm. I think at the time I felt that my, um, my peers were all getting ready to start graduating from college and I hadn't even started yet. And that made me feel a certain type of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I started thinking about, I didn't want to get too old before I started really getting serious about, you know, dating and finding somebody and all that kind of stuff, because I did want to get married and have kids one day. And I didn't want to wait for, you know, I didn't want to go 15, 20 years and be some loser that could never get a girl kind of thing. So I think that also motivated me a little bit. Um, But yeah, I, I think it was, I was tired of, I think that the real big one was I was tired of feeling sorry for myself. I was tired of playing a, a victim and 
I realized, you know, nobody else cares. Like, you know, like right. I, I could talk till I'm blue in the face for why I am the way I am and why I got the way I got. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, everybody else is focused on their own stuff. So right. if, if everybody else is going to go out and focus on their own stuff, why can't I just focus on my own stuff and try to do it in a positive way versus a negative way? And that's, you know, that was a massive uh, um, step in the right direction for me once I stopped feeling sorry for myself and I started just setting my goal into more of an achievement mindset. Mm -hmm. um, the world opened up to me. Yeah, but usually it's a woman that I get both. Just yeah well it wasn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily a woman it was uh, like women in general <laughs> right 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 i mean that's a great motive i mean but I, I look at it like this like whatever could motivate you to take the next step you know to help yourself out it's it's a good thing you know no matter what it is money women whatever you know natural pleasures or you know insights that that always works yeah. I, I felt like I just wanted to be normal. You know, I felt like everybody else around me was doing normal adult grown up things. And here I am just like eating to, to quell my sorrows and, uh, mm -hmm. and drinking and going out to bars every night and stuff like that. And it just wasn't great. So I, I needed to get out of that mindset and, and, you know, thank the Lord I did. Right. And so when you graduated from, uh, from grad school, you said you, you got, did you get into sales right after that? No, I did a year of, it was actually kind of ironic timing. I did a year of sales in between college and grad school and it was mortgage sales during like right before the housing crisis of 2006 to 2008. And I, I was kind of borderline. I didn't know whether or not I wanted to go back to school or whether or not I wanted to kind of, you know, pursue a career in sales. Real estate was interesting to me at the time, but, um, I, uh, you know, and, and it, houses were, you know, the housing market, if you remember the pre-housing crash, it was pretty crazy how many people could get into what kind of houses they could get into. Right. Uh, but when, when I was in the mortgage industry, I kind of, I saw the inside baseball of it. I saw people signing up people up for some pretty bad mortgages and, uh, and it just seemed dirty and not really something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So mm -hmm. uh, that's when I kind of got the itch to go back to school and, and really get into a school that could help open up the right kind of doors for me. And that's where I decided to go to the VCU Brand Center, which is a top school and it's uh, in the industry for what I do. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, I just got back into school at 27, got out at 29. And then I, I went out and uh, I got a job working at Audi of America for one of their agencies and Audi, the car brand. It was uh you know, I had a lot of options at the time because I graduated pretty high in my class. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was it was a weird economy that I graduated into because it was 2008 and the housing market had just crashed. There was a recession in play. I remember George Bush handed over to Obama. It was just a terror. It, well, it, it hadn't happened yet. Bro, it, Bush was are, still. We okay. are the exact same age. I just figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like well yeah so yeah i was i was a part of that too like just getting out of school and having to come into this uh the economy and it was like it was such a disservice because we weren't able to get the jobs that'll um that'll lead us to greater skills to like move up in the corporate world you know right. so it's like we had to start in our late 20s almost to you know start being corporate and develop the skills so it's like now our generation is starting like the managerial uh, uh, positions later on in life where it's like now somebody that's like in their mid thirties are managers, they're managers, but you know, they have the experience to back it up. 
Yeah. 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 So I got, I got out in that economy and I, mm -hmm. I had a few different jobs, but, um, even though some of the offers that I had were for more money, uh, I decided to go with that job because it was, it was cars. I didn't want to work on credit cards or paper towels or diapers with some of these other companies that I could have worked for. Right. Right. And, uh, I loved cars. My dad was a car collector. My uncle was a car collector. And I'm glad I took that job because like within one month, it was June of 2008, uh, Scott Keogh, who, who you mentioned in my bio, um, he was the chief marketing officer of Audi at the time. And he hmm. pulled me, he pulled me into his office for no other reason, but I looked young, you know, I'm 44, but, and at the time I was 29, but I probably looked like I was 23. And, um, and I think he thought I was 23. He didn't know who I was other mm -hmm. than I was just like the new agency guy that worked on the floor with them. And uh, and he gave me an assignment and the assignment was to research social media. He said he threw a New York Times article down on his desk and it was a it was a New York Times article uh, of Barack Obama. And the article was talking about how Barack Obama was, you know, on pace to become the president of the United States utilizing Facebook groups. And so Scott's whole challenge to me was if this guy can become leader of the free world using Facebook groups, mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if we can sell cars. Right. <laughs> and that that's kind of what got my career in social media started was that uh, the head of Audi's marketing uh, team thought I was young and assumed that because I was young, I understood social media more than all the other old dinosaurs on the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, just kidding. All my, all my Audi folks, <laughs> you know, I love you. Um, and uh and yeah, I so for like six months, I worked from, I did my day job during the day, worked my mm -hmm. nine to five for my agency on the brand advertising team at Audi. And then he didn't want me to, to mix and mix and mingle my social media research efforts with my day job because mm -hmm. he didn't want me to tell my agency I was doing it because he, he didn't want to get charged for it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I worked from like seven o'clock at night to like one o'clock in the morning every night, just learning about what brands were doing, what in social media. And, uh, and there wasn't a ton happening because uh, as you can imagine, 2008, Facebook had only been around for three or four years at the time. And, you know, I, I was on MySpace and Friendster before that. So I knew about social networking personally, but I didn't really know that brands were going to get ready to do anything in this space or could do anything in this space. So that's kind of what I was trying to figure out. Right. Um, but I spent, you know, the better part of six months working nights trying to figure out who was doing what and bringing reports back to Scott. And then after after that, he really liked what he saw and told me he wanted to proceed and uh, and come up with a go to market strategy that we could take to the Germans and try to get funding. Cause he was like, I'm not going to give you any of my marketing budget for this. <laughs> so, so we did that. I, I worked another like three months and came up with a go to market strategy um, with the help of the team that I had assembled and was managing at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, we took it to the backstage at the New York auto show in 2009 and we sold it to the Germans and they financed our, our, the build out of our social team. So I got to hire an agency. I got to hire uh, some internal marketing resources dedicated to social media. And then after a while, um, I, I I was in the process of, of trying to figure out how to move to New York because my girlfriend at the time was there. She's now the wife and she, my wife and the mother of my four kids. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to marry her. I wanted to propose to her. So I asked Scott, I was like, you got any jobs up in New York for me? And he said, no, absolutely not. And, uh, but I'll, we'll see what we can do. And I think he, uh, behind the scenes started to like, 
you know, navigate and do a little puppet mastering or whatever. Cause uh, a, a couple weeks later, I had a job interview with the the head of the New York office of the agency that we hired and, mm -hmm. uh, and they hired me, moved me up to New York and the rest is history. I wound up managing the Audi brand from New York, uh, from that agency. Um, and I did that amongst other things within that agency, uh, for a number of years until Mr. Gary V came calling. Wow. Dude, where did you grow up? I grew up in DC. Uh, On DC. I just, okay. I grew up in uh, Fairfax County specifically, which is a suburb of DC. Right, right, right. Okay. So New York was specifically for, I thought, I thought you grew up in New Jersey for some reason. Nope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Probably because oh, cool. I'm wearing like I'm wearing New York Giants red, right? Red, red and white. Red and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, so okay. So when around what time did Gary V actually like contact you? Uh, what year uh, well, was that? That was 20, that was 2013. 2013. Um, it was 2013, but it was kind of a little bit of a long courtship. I was working on a Super Bowl campaign at the time for mm -hmm. Jaguar. I had kind of moved off of Audi and I was climbing the ranks at group M and, um, and I had moved on to another car brand, which is Jaguar, uh, at the time. And we were launching our first Super Bowl spot. Um, it was the F type coupe when they had relaunched a coupe for the first time in 40 years or whatever. And, mm. um, and I didn't want to leave at the time. Um, I had no interest in leaving cause, uh, I, you know, when I start a project like that, I like to see it through. And that mm. was a big deal for, I was the head, I was the lead, strategist on the social media front for that campaign and it was a big deal uh so i wasn't interested in leaving at the time but um i i did entertain gary was the one and only company that i actually entertained when they came calling um just because i knew of him and i knew how big of a deal in in the industry he was and how fast he was rising to fame um, I mean, I had taken other job interviews before, or, or I, I had gotten other opportunities to interview interview before with other companies. And I always said no, because I was pretty happy in what I was doing. But in that particular instance, I had talked to his brother-in-law, who was the recruiter. And then he brought me in for a couple of interviews with Gary. Um, and at first, I was very skeptical because Gary's reputation and his uh, the way he talks online, like the swearing and stuff, that kind of turned me off. Uh, but, but meeting him in person... Um, made me feel a different way about him. I thought he was, he his, his in-person persona was, didn't really match up with his onstage persona. He was much more of a humble guy, family oriented guy behind the scenes. And, uh, and we hit it off great, but I still wasn't really, really ready to leave my other agency until that, that Super Bowl gig was up. So I told him, I was like, I'm not leaving any, I'm not leaving this company until the Super Bowl's over. Mm -hmm. And this was, mind you, this was like fall of 2013 when we're having these conversations so, but he hung in there with me and like the day after the Super Bowl um, in February of 2014, I had a job offer in my inbox from him and uh, and I I gave my company, I think I gave them a month notice and then I started at Vayner the next month in March. Wow. Wow. Yeah, man. Gary V is actually like a, a dominant figure in, in social media marketing. I remember, I mean, he was the one that got chat GPT on fire. You yeah, know? I mean, he's, like, he's done a lot. Yeah. 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 Pretty, pretty good guy. And so what are some of the things that you learned from working with Gary V? Uh, there's a lot of things I've learned over the years with working with Gary V. I think the first, the one that sticks out the most to me was uh, 
I was about three or four years in on the job and I was managing one of the largest portfolios in the company. So I was managing AB InBev, which is a, yeah, your listeners may or may not know. It's like a multinational corporation that runs, that owns like all the major beer brands in America and North America globally. This is Budweiser, Bud Light, Stella Artois, Michelob, all those brands. So I was managing that portfolio and we were doing, I think we had like 14 or 15 brands that we were the digital agency of record for. And, and I had grown that from, you know, one brand to 15 brands over the first like two to three years that I worked there. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day, one day, it was actually closer to night. It was after hours after Gary had just delivered an all hands meeting to the entire company. And we were like, I don't know, 400 people at the time, 500 people, something relatively small compared to what they are now. They're now like 3000 people and they're worldwide. But back then it was like maybe four or 500 people. And I remember um, having a lot of anxiety at the time because mm-hmm. I think we were getting ready to lose the Bud Light account. I had, I had a sixth sense that that was getting ready to happen. And um, me and my group creative director, Chris Bradley, we were in a conference room talking about that, um, like just talking about the vibes on that business and how they weren't that good. And uh, and Gary came in, I think he sensed that we were talking about that, or maybe I had a, I had waved him over or something like that because we wanted to get it on his radar. And he came in and I, and I told him, I was like, Gary, I think we might lose the Bud Light business. And he was like, good. He didn't say it like exactly like Jocko Willink or anything like that, but he said, you know, it's all right. It's all good. It doesn't matter. Like we can lose it and we're still going to be fine. And he said it so flippantly, like, what are you talking about? This is like a multi-million dollar account. Like we're going to, we're going to lose this. Like it's going to mean we might have to like lay people off or whatever. And he was like, no, it doesn't mean any of that stuff. Like we, we can do whatever we want and we can lose this one and we'll go out and get five more. He was like, I don't care. And he was like, you need to have that confidence as well, because you've got 80 or 90 people out there looking at you and looking at your every reaction. So if you care that we lose the Bud Light business, then it matters. But if you don't care that we lose the Bud Light business and, you know, we're going to go off and make it up some other way within that portfolio, then everybody on your, in your group is going to react in kind and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to get through this just easily. We won't have to lay off anybody. In fact, we could probably hire people if you Mm. go out and win three more accounts or, you know, add in, a new layer of service like media or something like that. And, uh, and I just thought that was such an interesting, you know, way to approach things like not reacting, you know, in the moment um, so hastily when bad news comes around, because it's only bad if you react to it in that way. It's only bad if you get scared. It's only bad if you, if you are short sighted, it's only bad if you don't have patience. If you have patience, if you have the right mentality, you have the right attitude, you have the right people under you, you have the right people around you, you can tackle anything. It's never right. bad news. It's only you that make it make makes it bad. You know, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I always learned from him because he's an eternal optimist and um and he always thinks we're gonna dominate and do well every time. And you know, like in life, just like in sports, you know, you miss a lot of shots or you you do things wrong, you fuck shit up. And I'm sorry, I don't know if I can curse, but oh, you can um, yeah. militant grind, remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in life you're gonna miss some shots, but like the great ones don't really sit there and focus on all those shots that they miss. They just keep shooting, you know, like mm-hmm. that's it.
Yeah. And I think, I think Gary is a shooter. He's a volume shooter. When it, if you think about business, like he's for sure going to miss a, a few, but you know, he's going to go down as an all-time great. Wow. And that, that's a very uh, great lesson, you know, cause I, I told my daughter the other day, like my son had messed up her charger. He, he got it wet. Right. And the first thing she did was say, you know, she was just crying. She was upset. He broke my charger. Ah, And I was just like, instead of taking the time to, you know, complain about it, you're, you know, this is already done. Let's figure out a solution on how to fix it. Yeah. You know, put your energy into that instead of putting your energy into, you know, it's okay to be angry, but use that anger to find a solution rather than to just dwell in sorrow, you know? And I and feel I'm like that that takes a that it that does take a great talent because you know our first instincts is like okay we should be angry we should worry we should panic you know but just to say no we're gonna be fine I believe we're we have everything we need we're gonna be good you know don't worry about it let's let's keep going that takes a hell of a mental talent. Well, and, and the, I think the most interesting part about that is. It's one thing to be that way. It's one thing to kind of be constantly wired as an optimist. It's another thing to have self-awareness to know that there's people watching you and mm-hmm. they count on you, right? So it was it was really at that moment in time where I had had to understand like whether or not I like it or not, I'm a leader and I have to lead these people, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're Hey, like, you know, if, if not me, they'll get somebody else in here to do it. But somebody's going to have to do this job. Somebody's going to have to 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 be to have the right mindset at the right time to mm-hmm. make sure that people around them don't panic. Right. Part of what what's interesting about life, whether or not what it's you as a father or a mother or a leader in a business or a manager or a CEO. Mm-hmm. Part of what's interesting about life is how you respond to things. And the only thing that really separates the the great, the luminaries from the not are just the way that they react to everyday life. Like think bad things will happen. How mm-hmm. do, how you respond is what makes you different, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how did that relay into fatherhood? Because as a father of the the tribe that you have, you know, you are a leader. So when things happen, you do have to be the one to like, you know, save face and make sure that everybody's going to be okay, no matter what, you know? I mean, it translates all the time, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and I see myself acting in, in fatherhood, much like I do in business, you know, like, um, I'm the type of person that's going to give you trust before, you know, I don't, you don't have to earn my trust. I give it up front. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you could obviously you know, diminish the trust I have in you, <laughs> but uh, especially if you can continuously, uh, you know, test my nerve <laughs> over right. and over again and don't listen. But the 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 faith and the the trust is given up front, and I try to make sure that uh, I'm as positive and optimistic uh, as I can be at any given time. And of course, having a bunch of young kids is a constant struggle, and it does test your nerves. But um, I think. You know, I try to always have as much humility as possible and understanding that there's a higher power. I'm just here doing what I can do in the moment. And what I what I absolutely don't want to have happen is I don't want to I don't want to act in a way that's going to be negative, uh, a negative detriment to their psychology over the long haul. So 
even if it means that maybe I come across as a little bit of a pushover from time to time, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to make sure I insert myself uh, as forcefully as I can in the moments where I feel like kids need to learn a lesson. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like the kids can get one over on me from time to time and it's not, not a big shock. Uh, but I'd rather, um, I'd rather teach my kids in my own way. Right. Similar to how I teach my employees. Like, I want, for the most part, everybody to be happy and be part of a, a cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want, I want us to be, I want us to act and behave in the image of God as much as we can, and then work on our weaknesses when we fall short. Right. right. <laughs> uh, I'd rather do that than be imperfect more times than not and have to have deep seated issues of, uh, when it comes to behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've had employees like that. I've had employees that are some of the best employees you'll ever have when it comes to the brass tacks and getting stuff done, but they fall incredibly short in the, uh, the, not the personality side of things, but in the nurturing side of things, they make everyone around them f- afraid of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not a big fan of the style of leadership where you, you know, make everybody afraid up front. You make people earn your trust over time. You start from a trust deficit and people have to walk on eggshells around you. Like that's not my style whatsoever. Right. So um, so I kind of am the inverse of that, you know? And I think there's a time and a place and I think there are there is a need to make sure that when you're building a team that it's well-balanced and you have the right kinds of leaders, even if that means you have a hard-ass leader amongst some other people that aren't. But um but yeah, me personally, when it comes to fatherhood, I think I'm a I'm a little bit of a pushover on a day-to-day basis, but I'm there all the time. I'm there when it counts with mm-hmm. a message that's going to resonate. And I like to inspire my kids, you know, to 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 do the right thing because it's the right thing. So Yeah. Yeah. And I I could I could definitely um relate to that because I'll let my kids push me over just so I won't just so they won't feel powerless. You know, like I want them to feel some sense of power, not that they're a, a powerless kid, you know, so I'll let them get away with certain things. But, you know, there's a you know, there's a point that you have to get to, you know, so I would test them like that, you know, um, definitely, you know, give them some type of control and, you know, just to make them feel this just so they can have a self-esteem, you know what I mean? Because I For felt sure. like growing up, you know, I felt like a powerless kid and I actually like hated that. You know, like I have no control and I hate it being controlled. So me knowing that I'm like, okay, let me give my kids, you know, let them choose sometimes. Let let me uh, let them have choices. Let them, you know, decide what they want to eat, what they want to do. Let me ask them a question, you know, like, what do you guys want? You know, so I also I love that sound. Also, um, going back to trusting people, you know, I would often say, like, you have to basically give people what you expect of them and know that they actually could, you know, handle the expectations and then just trust them from there, you Mm -hmm. know, but I'm not going to trust people with things that I know that they probably can't handle. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, if I hire you to do a job and I know you have the capabilities, I'll automatically trust you to get it done. Right. You know? And so I, I really can't understand why someone not would not want to trust somebody if you know that they have the capabilities to do, you know, a, a certain job, like some people have different styles of working, different personalities and things like that. 
you know, but someone like me, I'm like, man, I could care less. You could just, as long as you get the job done, that's the only thing I care about, you yeah. know, and you work in yeah. an efficient manner, you know? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I, I feel like one thing that I try to do as much as I can, because I, I think it's my superpower. I think what we kind of started off this podcast talking about, like, the long-term, the intermediate planning of, of me going 500 days almost running every day and losing a bunch of weight to then focusing on my career and fo and thinking about things on a 25-year horizon. Mm -hmm. Like I've always been a good planner in that regard. So one thing that I try to espouse on my kids at least is try to figure out to some extent, to, to, to the extent that you can, how to set long-term goals, right? Because we could talk about the day-to-day -day and who's right and who's wrong and who has trust and who doesn't have trust and all that kind of stuff. But if they understand what they're, where they're going in life, or at least in the near future, right? Understanding that at the end of this year, you're going to be at the end of third grade and what do you want to achieve? What do you want to accomplish? All those kind of things. If you put them on a, a, a more grandiose path than just getting through the day-to-day, -day, mm -hmm. they typically they typically respond in the day-to-day -day better, right? Well, it's one thing that I found is I don't want to be the kind of person that's always got stress and anxiety because I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going, right? right? right. I, and I try to make sure that my employees and people around me, any team that I'm on, any brand that I'm working on, my kids and my household, me and my wife, you know, like whenever there's a struggle and usually, and I think you brought it up, a a lot of the reason why people struggle is because they're out of alignment with their expectations. Right. But it, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to really have expectations if you never start sit around thinking about what you want to achieve, you know, mm. and thinking long term. So I think it's always important, even if it's just like 30 days or 100 days or a year or whatever the case may be, sitting down with your kids and saying, hey, like, you know, this is a big year, 2024, you're turning nine. What do we want to achieve before we turn nine? What do we want to do when we, before we get out of third grade? What do we want to do, uh, you know, when we look back on this time in life? Like, where are we going? What is this going to mean? Like, even if it's, you know, the the silliest sounding conversation, like right now, my daughter wants to be a ballerina and stuff like that. Not to say she can't be a ballerina, but mm -hmm. let's be honest, like less than 0.01% of kids are going to turn into prima ballerinas. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> doesn't matter to me. It's just the fact that we're, we're laying that conversation out and we're talking about what she could be. And okay, if you want to be that, how do we get there? Right. Let's reverse right. engineer from that. Like, are you in high performing ballet classes right now? Are you doing your homework? Are you keeping your room clean? Cause you know, we can't pay for these very expensive things if you don't take care of the basics, you know? Right. Um, and I think, you know, th doing that level of just intricate, outlook on life helps them get through the day-to-day -day because they know there's something bigger than just this thing you know mm -hmm. yeah it's funny that you say that because my my daughter wants to be a, a youtuber so i was like okay record the videos doing it you know figure it out you know yeah. but then i like I, I i was with it but then i was like i'm gonna see if she has a fortitude to actually like keep it up because a lot of times you know us as humans period we say that we want to do things and then we get in and be like okay it's not for us you know, yeah. so I don't tell them they can't do anything. I'm just like, OK, go ahead and see if it's for you, because I don't know. You might become a star. Who knows? You know, I'm not going to doubt you. I'm not going to do anything, but at least try to say that, you know, try and do it just so you can't say, hey, I gave it a shot. I figured out it wasn't for me and I'm just going to keep it moving, you know? Yeah. Just go taste it. You know, you gotta. there's no way you're going to figure out really truthfully if you really want to do that unless you try it. Right. So, 
Yeah, yeah. 100%. Exactly. Exactly, man. So let's talk about um, how you started dealing with the PTSD afflicted uh, veterans. So yeah. is that kind of like a, you know, like I want to do this to give back or, or yeah, kind yeah. of. I mean, yeah. so, well, so I spent uh, six years running AB InBev, which is like a massive beer portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, I, I quit drinking in 2019, no, 2018, I quit drinking. Uh, and it wasn't because I was an alcoholic or anything like that. Uh, I mean, beer was all around me. And that was like, it was, you know, a little bit hard to really uh, escape. Uh, and there was also a massive like happy hour culture in New York. Uh, I was also having to take clients out for drinks all the time. So it was a little bit awkward, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, when I when I quit drinking. Um and eventually that led to me moving out to Los Angeles because I didn't really, you know, I didn't really want to work on beer anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, yeah, so when I stopped drinking alcohol, I, I think the most common annoyance for me was that people were asking me why I did it and almost like looking down on me for doing it. Um, and I didn't really think it was something to be looked down upon. It was just mm-hmm. like my, my doctor told me to stop drinking. And I had two young kids at the time, but they were like two and one or three and two or something like that, respectively. And I really didn't like being hung over around them. So the, the quitting drinking wasn't that big of a deal. But then the farther out I've gotten from drinking alcohol, the more I realized how toxic it is to our bodies. There's really, you know, back in the day, you know, there used to be some research studies saying that you could drink wine and a little bit of wine's healthy. But I think we found out over, over the years that that's actually not true. There's nothing about alcohol that's healthy for your body. Right. Um, and I started thinking about it more and more. And, um, you know, me and a partner of mine, JM, who you've met on, on my podcast, mm-hmm. you know, we started going out to, uh, to, 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 you know, bars or whatever, when I was alcohol free and he was still, he still had yet to quit drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we discovered that it was possible to actually infuse drinks with cannabis. Mm. And now I will really, at the time, I really wasn't a big cannabis consumer and I'm still not a huge cannabis consumer. Uh, I used to consume a lot more when I was in those early days, pre-college, but, uh, but I'd gone like 20 years without, without really consuming much cannabis. Um, but the more and more I got into it, uh, and learning about it, uh, and, and starting to think about the the potential future of a world where, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could cut down on the amount of drunk driving accidents, the amount of, you know, um, domestic abuse cases, right? Cause mm-hmm. any, anywhere, you, anywhere there's a murder, you're sure enough going to find alcohol with it. You know, if you, you don't have to look very hard to find alcohol's involvement in those types of things. And so couple that, couple those thoughts and, and trying to think about, you know, cannabis as an alternative to alcohol with the fact that I'm already a little bit skeptical of the government. I'm already a little skeptical of big medicine and stuff like that. And I started really doing, just putting in some research. Um, JM came to me one day and was like, hey, let's let's launch a product in this space. So we've been working on one for like the past two or three years called fuzzy water, which is uh, a cannabis infused uh, seltzer water beverage. And it's still, it, it should launch this year in, in the state of Missouri where mm-hmm. we have our, our contract manufacturer and our distributions there. Uh, but as I've been going through the paces of building out that product, uh, I've been doing all kinds of research and the thing that a couple of things that come across loud and clear about uh, cannabis's use and the potential benefits 
uh, are specifically around certain kinds of groups and certain types of detriment. So I think about veterans, number one, as, as a big thing, right? Because it's federally illegal, veterans don't have access to prescription drugs when it comes to cannabis. And I think that's just a, a really big shame. Uh, I don't think they should necessarily have to go uh, take, you know, lab-derived chemicals to treat their PTSD or their trauma. And most vets do come home with some form of trauma. And I think right. that's, and I've, I've obviously got family members in the military and I know you do too. So yeah. it's, it's always been a cause that I've donated my personal money to, but now I get to, to pour in my, my actual intellect and my strategic knowledge into it as well. But then the other group that I think I've got a really big rooting interest for rooting interest in is young people. So mm -hmm. Gen Gen Z or even behind that Gen Alpha, which is what my kids are in, you know, the more and more we keep, you know, shoving these devices in front of them, the more they're going to have anxiety and stress and, and those, that stress leads to all kinds of other things like trauma, trauma response and uh, PTSD and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I think it's a really big problem that we've got on our hands societally, like just mm -hmm. like depression, anxiety, stress at large, like that whole category of, of symptoms. And I don't think we really have a, a good grip on how to solve it at the societal levels. But one, one thing that I think is a step in the right direction is to stop demonizing natural medicines that have been around for thousands of years and, uh, and start utilizing them to our benefit. Cause I mean, if I had a choice, like if my kids, you know, wind up growing up, they get into their twenties and they have some depression or anxiety issues, I'd rather put a joint in their hands than put some lifelong, you know, medication that they've got to be on uh, antidepressant or something like that, not to take anything away from those drugs and people need those and all that, that kind of stuff. And if that's what you do, fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't really, I don't see cannabis as this massive gateway drug into like doing heroin on the street corner. Like a lot of people do. Hell no. I, I see it. <laughs> I see it as a much more natural way to solve your problems when it comes to anxiety and stress, than, right. you know, right. and some of those other forms. So that's why I'm so bullish on it is that I think, uh, and that's why I want to create products and services in the category. Cause I think, uh, I think it's going to be huge one day. And I think, uh, it's something that we as a society can handle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I have a friend that's a combat veteran who is diagnosed with PTSD and he's a big proponent of weed, you know, like he, he has to do it almost, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm like, Hey man, if it works for you, you know, if it keeps you relaxed, calm, you know, it's okay. But I'm not really for the people that abuse weed. Like, okay, I'm gonna wake up, smoke. I'm taking yeah. a break. I'm a smoke. I'm a smoke, smoke, smoke. I'm like, man, okay, this is a little bit too much, you know, Yeah. anything yeah. like in abundance like that, you know, it, well, you we could all get addicted to anything, you know, sure. you can get addicted to cake, you know, juice, water, whatever. But then yeah. I'm like, Anything in excess like that can be a problem, but I don't smoke weed, but then it's like, you know, if it's a social thing, I might be like, okay, you know, why not? You know what I mean? I'm around my friends. It's it's cool. It's a, you know, good environment. Okay. I'm a partake in it. I don't smoke anything. I'm never letting any smoke into my body, but I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll do a gummy here or there, like once or twice a year kind of thing, if I'm yeah. in the right conditions, but I, I have the same right. way. Like, for me, it's not about what you do. It's about how much you do it. It's about what yeah. you do it, why you do it and how you're doing it. So, mm -hmm. and I think I would take anything in life and temperance is the option right now. Right. E to your point, like mm -hmm. 
you know, you could do anything uh, cake, like, uh, like sugar is a great example. Like there's, yeah. cer there's certain things right now that are, that, that are very detrimental for us that are perfectly legal, like sugar, like coffee, caffeine, mm -hmm. um, and like screen time, you know, like yeah. dopamine in general, like it's, mm -hmm. is something that we could, you know, like people are out, it's that, you know, you know, we're not, we're not cracking down on society because, you know, 18 year old kids have porn addictions, right? Like there's a lot right. of things out there that are addictive, I think everything you should do should be taken in, with a temperate outlook in mind. Like you shouldn't do anything in overabundance. And but I think that's that's the fact that I'm a spiritual guy and I I, I believe in Christianity. When I read the Bible, like it tells you not to be, you know, not to be a glutton and not to do right. anything in in, in uh, to an overextent. So mm -hmm. uh, I maybe that's just like anti-American, but <laughs> like I feel like I feel like to be American to some extent you have to overconsume things. Uh, but I, I think that's America's biggest problem. Like, and that's the reason why we're falling behind when it comes to education. That's why we're obese as a society. Like uh, America wants to do everything in excess, even if it means like skipping school, even if it means watching too much porn, drinking too much alcohol, smoking too mm -hmm. much weed, whatever. But that shouldn't necessarily be, you know, we shouldn't necessarily demonize one drug over another type of drug right if if, if substances are going to be legal if alcohol is going to be legal cannabis should be illegal or should be legal if and we should have a, a perspective on these things and we should regulate the shit out of them we should regulate them hard and we should yeah. make them hard to get and you should be older to get them uh, but I do think like if we're going to send our, our men and women off to war and we're going to make we're going to expose them to killing and seeing mm -hmm. people be killed and all the drama that happens on the battlefield, why would we have them come home and not be able to prescribe them a bag of weed when that's like by far the easiest way to deal with your PTSD? <laughs> you right, know? They can't even drink alcohol until they're 21. That's another thing that's crazy. I could do everything besides buy alcohol after 18 years old. But, exactly. you know, but yeah, I mean, that might be because of colleges or, or whatever. But, you know, we I feel like if we do educate people on substance abuse and addictions and things like that, you know, we should be OK. You know, we know the consequences of what we're doing. We should be OK. But like I say before uh, you purchase a gun, you have to take a class. You have to learn gun safety. You know, you have to take a test. Maybe we can implement that when people partake in these different, you know, drugs or, you know, or whatever, well, you, want to call, you know? Well, like I mentioned before, um, I don't think people realize how big of a problem alcohol is in society. And I think it's because Hollywood and corporate America make it be, it, it's this glamorous thing. And I understand why we went through prohibition in this country and prohibition, mm -hmm. nobody wanted, and they all wanted alcohol to come back. So when alcohol came back, we decided to put it in our movies and put it in our corporate settings and make it a very seen as a very positive thing. But if you look at the statistics, if you go and look at, if you peel the onion back on the murders, on the domestic abuse, on the drunk driving accidents, the car accidents in general, alcohol is involved in almost every bad thing that happens in society. Mm -hmm. And we don't, and we don't call it out. Right. You know, full stop. But if you right. were to, if you were to make alcohol illegal again, you'd have next to no drunk driving incidents, you'd have very little domestic abuse, right? Like all these big, huge societal problems, right? Mm -hmm. We want to blame guns for it. We don't want to blame the guy that's drunk carrying the gun, which right. is insane to me that we don't do that. <laughs> right? You know, like, 
Uh, I think we have to check ourselves across the board. Uh, not, I'm not saying cannabis is the perfect thing. I don't think it's something that we should just, you know, let roam free in society to the same extent that we do alcohol. I don't think we should do that for anything. <laughs> uh, but right. I, I think we can't, we have to be honest with ourselves and what we blame for all of our problems, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's basically self-accountability, you know, but then it's like, if there's no culture of self-accountability, and self-awareness then hey nothing's gonna happen you know True. like we should know yeah. like okay well i mean i feel like it's happening now more so than ever like hey if you guys are feeling like you're gonna drink now take a uber you know or limit your alcohol intake or something like that so i feel like it's it's slowly happening you know which is a good yeah. thing yeah yeah hopefully yeah. i mean all we can hope for is that everything that does harm to people gets regulated a little bit more you know that's it that's all mm -hmm. we can hope for Okay. So that's what you're up to now, huh, Joe? That's what I'm up to now. Just trying to launch brands, uh, working with a handful. As it, I mean, I, I run my own consultancy now called Quattrone Brands. Uh, within mm. that, I work on like three or four cannabis brands uh, as a, a fractional CMO. And then um, I also just take some, some odd job consulting gigs here and there that don't relate to the cannabis field. But mm. uh, yeah, I'm trying to launch some of my own brands. I'm working on others. Um really just trying to give back. I think, you know, you mentioned before, was there something that triggered it? And I would say, yeah, I mean, I worked on alcohol for six years and I tried to get people to drink alcohol. And I, now I, I think back on it with my kids growing up and I, and just looking at the research, the way I've looked at it, I'm like, shit, I did that. So to cancel that out, I got to go to this. You know? yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't necessarily live with myself because we did amazing work. You know, we did great mm -hmm. work when I was working under Gary on Budweiser and Bud Light and Stella Artois and uh, mm -hmm. some of the some of the best social media campaigns you'll ever see. We were a part of and uh, and I'm proud of those efforts, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be even prouder of the efforts that come out of me in the next 10 years. Oh, I'm sure you will be. I guess you're going through a trial of uh, atonement, we should say, right? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> good, man, good. Man, Joe, this has been great. Um, I learned a lot. You said, you know, you, you gave a lot of gems, man. Um, I feel like I'm going to take a lot of these things to heart, you know? Right. Especially, like, when you're going through a tough time just to remain stoic. You know, that's a that's a really big thing. I have to really concentrate and meditate on that because one thing we do know as business people or, you know, leaders or people, you know, fathers, people in your community, period, there are always going to be rough times, you know, but it's what, like, what's your mental state while you're going through that tough time? I feel like that's very important. Well, it's funny because my, the only person in life that really knows how to trigger me is my wife, but I can see myself <laughs> when, when we're arguing, uh -huh. I know, I know that I've lost the argument if I start getting heated and emotional. Cause it, and I look at my look, when I watch other people argue, like when I watch it on YouTube videos or TV mm -hmm. politicians or whatever, I tend to always side with the person that's more calm. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the, the, the rhetoric that comes from the person that's loud and argumentative and bombastic. And cause they, they tend to look like they're swirling and I'm mm -hmm. like, and so when me and my wife are arguing, sometimes I, I, I hope I try to catch myself and like, wait a minute, how did she get me so triggered? What do I need to do to get out of this state of emotion real quick? How do I calm it down and, and argue from a point? Cause you, if you can argue from a point of, of cool, calm and collective, then you have the, uh, you, 
you kind of have the upper hand in the argument, right? Because no matter what, most people around you are always going to look at you as the one that, regardless of whether or not you're right or wrong, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna look more right because you looked more right. Right, <laughs> right, you know, right. And that's something I definitely have to work on. Depending on like if I'm passionate about something, I start to be like, nah, 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 you know. But then yeah. I feel like my passion definitely helps my point come across. Like I'm not like running around, you know, kicking stuff around and you know, yelling at the top of my lungs or anything like that. But I do like when I want to feel like if I'm very passionate about something, you know, I'll, I'll spark a little argument, but if it's not worth it, I'll just probably be like, oh, I don't, I don't care. You got it. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't really want to put, uh, you know, any time or effort into that, just depending on what it is. But right. I, you know, I, I definitely learned that it's okay to just not necessarily lose, but just like, you know, just, let it slide, I guess, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you gotta just, you gotta make sure you understand people are watching you in those moments. And then if people are going to watch you, then you have to be as optimistic as possible because mainly you don't know what those people have going on in their life. But if mm-hmm. you're worried as a leader that you lost a piece of business and you're going to have to lay people off or whatever, they're going to sense that, right? It, they're going to sense that and that's going to get them worried. If that gets them worried, they start getting their resumes ready. They start going out and interviewing for jobs. The hardest thing to do, like, right, if you're being tasked with growing a company, right. it's, real, it's really hard to grow the company if you've got 10, 20%, 30% turnover at any of the ranks, right? The mm-hmm. fastest way to grow is if you have no leaks in the bucket, right? right. Everybody's on the ship. Right. Right, Everybody, everybody's in and you're adding more to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why Gary was giving me that advice back in those days is because he didn't want the turnover. He didn't want all the drama that comes with bad leaders being freaked out by loss. Right. Right. Um, Right. So you can't be freaked out by loss. You got to roll with it. You know, exactly. Anyway, perfect sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, like where um, where can people find you if they want to reach you? Uh, super Quattrone. So my last name plus super at the front of it will find, will basically show you where I'm at on any platform. Just do a mm-hmm. Google search and you'll find me on LinkedIn. I'm probably the most communicative on LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, but you can also check out my podcast, fuzzyishpodcast.com. That'll get you a link to all the different episodes. That's fuzzy with two Z's and two E's. Mm-hmm. Um, fuzzyishpodcast.com. It'll take you to our podcast. We'd really appreciate the listens. Oh, cool. <laughs> And I'm 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 a guest on the podcast as well. You so are, definitely yeah. listening to listen to uh my episode. I, we had a great conversation, man, as we are right now too. Like I really enjoyed you guys. Yeah. Very yeah. insightful. Yeah, on that podcast, we talk about sobriety, specifically being sober of alcohol, but like sobriety of any types. I think more more than anything, uh the the key themes that we pick up on are the importance of of being temperate and kind of not jumping into any kind of substance abuse, like mm-hmm. head on and, and trying to, to overconsume stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, look forward to having some people go and check out that podcast and, and feel free to, to link up with me and hit me up any way you can. Cool, man. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate your time. Definitely going to call you in about an hour. <laughs> call me up. Yeah. And we'll hopefully see each other when I'm out in Cali uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. right. Thanks, man. And, um, you know, have a great rest of your day, sir. All right, bro. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.